I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. The harbour lies below me, with on the far side one long granite wall stretching out into the sea, with a curve outwards at the end of it, in the middle of which is a lighthouse. A heavy seawall runs along outside of it. On the near side, the seawall makes an elbow crooked inversely, and its end too has a lighthouse. Between the two piers, there is a narrow opening into the harbour, which then suddenly widens. It is nice at high tide, but when the tide is out, it shoals away to nothing, and there is merely the stream of the Esk, running between banks of sand, with rocks here and there. Outside the harbour on this side, there rises for about half a mile a great reef, the sharp edge of which runs straight out from behind the south lighthouse. At the end of it is a boy with a bell, which swings in bad weather and sends in a mournful sound on the wind. They have a legend here that when a ship is lost, bells are heard out at sea. Welcome to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode... We take a book out into the wilds to see if the world of fiction matches up with the real world. I'm Lloyd Shepard. I'm a writer and digital product manager. I'm Tim Wright. I'm a digital writer and a producer of immersive fictions. Well, Tim, where are we immersing ourselves this episode? We are immersing ourselves in blood. We're obviously doing (laughs) Dracula by Bram, a.k.a. Abraham Stoker. Yes. Published in 1897. Yes, and uh, a date familiar to our listener. A date familiar to our listener because it's also the year that War of the Worlds was published. Appeared, appeared, yeah. yeah. The Martians and Dracula appear at the same time. I know, different parts of the world. Dracula is one of those books, again, I think that we can say that everybody kind of knows what it's sort of about and they've seen a film or maybe four. Or they've seen Sesame Street. Or they've seen, <laughs> I love Dugand. <laughs> book, as I think, is probably relatively less read. I would think so. 
I think people just know the films, don't yeah. they, really? It's a tough read at times. I think It's I, very long. Both, it's very long. <laughs> there are some quite sort of wordy bits. Yes. Um, they do take, tend took, to talk. Van Helsing, the vampire hunter, to, likes to talk. He likes I to talk and he likes to eat. I don't know if we've got any, any Dutch listeners. Do Dutch doctors speak a lot? Because he doesn't half bang on. <laughs> it's taken us to some brilliant places, though, I must say. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to Whitby. Yeah, I'd never been there before. Northeast coast of England, amazing place. Amazing. Yes, if you, if you if you get the chance, don't take the train, and you can drive. The drive across the Yorkshire Moors into Whitby is spectacular. Unbelievable. I had no idea mm. when, we, when we went. We're then going to come back down to more our part of the world, uh, London. We're going to Perfleet in Essex. In search of a lunatic asylum. Yeah, and, a, and an old house. A spooky house full of rats. With a spooky chapel. <laughs> uh, and uh, then we're going to come into town a little bit, and we're going to find where the house that Dracula bought was on Piccadilly. Yeah, he's quite showy, isn't he? He's, he's bought a house showy. right in the middle of town. He's not, he's, I mean, it's an old, three old locations, right? Perfectly, <laughs> Whitby and um, Piccadilly. And I mean, if you want to disappear in London, you, uh, you go down to, I don't know, um, Thornton Heath, don't yeah. you? <laughs> We're not going to go to the other, well, two other big locations in the book. Um, we're obviously not going to the Borgo Pass. In the, in the Carpathians, I have been on a map trying to find it. It is findable, but it's um, but the castle isn't. I've Dracula's been, I've, castle. I've been past the the castle which they say is Dracula's castle, the big tourist castle, no, which isn't really not. But there is yeah. a description both at the beginning and then at the end when they go down all these rivers chasing him. That, yeah, that that it's quite detailed and specific yeah. about where they go. It is, but quite hard to find any buildings yeah. near where they're talking about. Yeah. Also, we're saying that he never went there. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that. Um, The other location, which is bizarre, is Exeter. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that, about how they get to and from Exeter. That's where Jonathan Harker, the the lawyer who is is sent out to Count Dracula's castle. That's where he's from. To kind of deal with legal paperwork about buying properties in London and coming to London to suck your blood. And then we're going to end up in a graveyard in Hampstead. Yeah. Which is our final destination. So um, there were bats and owls in there. Shall we get going? I don't want to go there. Yeah. Well, well, we'll start off in somewhere in, in breezy, sunny Whitby, where I'm about to embark on an impression of uh, of Wilhelmina Murray that you were distinctly unimpressed by. Well, I think your impressions are getting better. You didn't like that one, though, did you? <laughs> Chapter 6. Mina Murray's Journal. 24th of July, Whitby. Lucy'd met me at the station, looking sweeter and lovelier than ever. And we drove up to the house at the Crescent, in which they have rooms... This is a lovely place. The little river, the Esk, runs through a deep valley, which broadens out as it comes near the harbour. A great viaduct runs across with high piers, through which the view seems somehow farther away than it really is. The valley is beautifully green, and it is so steep that when you're on the high land on either side, you look right across it, unless you are near enough to see down. The houses of the old town, the side away from us, are all red-roofed and seem piled up one over the other anyhow, like the pictures we see of Nuremberg. Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey, which was sacked by the Danes, and which is the scene of part of Marmion, where the girl was built up in the wall. It is a most noble ruin of immense size, and full of beautiful and romantic bits. There is a legend that a white lady is seen in one of the windows. Did you like my Mina Murray accent? Well, I don't don't hear her like that at all. I think she's a much more robust person. She is, actually. That's more Lucy, wasn't it? Well, I don't know where you get your voices from. (laughs) We're in Whitby. We're in Whitby, West Cliff. Windy Whitby. Very, very windy. We have just driven over the North Yorkshire Moors, which are spectacular. 
Yes. It's a bright sunny day in early April. We're sitting in a park in front of the Crescent. As mentioned. And uh, in one of those houses is the rooms that Lucy and Mina take. So there's a hotel on the corner called the Langley. One then, of the first things I would say yeah. is you can't see the Abbey from the, the, those windows. Uh, but if you were... If you're in the back were, of the buildings, If you, you were at the, the north-east side of the Crescent, yeah. with a room on the other side... On the back. You would. Yeah. So that probably means that if she really can see it, then it's, it's further down... On the back of the building. Nearer the sea end of the Crescent, I would say. It's definitely here. And you could here. definitely have stayed here. And her description's not bad. There was a quite a, a steep hill. When we drove down, there was a very deep valley, wasn't there? There was, the Esk. And there was quite a big bridge. We crossed the Esk and it was quite steep yeah. there. So the description all adds up, like, like he'd been here, the writer, Bram Stoker. So for those, for those not familiar with the UK, Whitby is on the northeast coast. It's on the coast of Yorkshire. The town faces to the east over the North Sea. It's where um, Captain James Cook hailed from. There's a Cook Museum, I believe. There's a Cook Museum, of course there is. There's also a Dracula experience. A dra- well, Dracula's big in this part of the world, isn't it? Dracula is big. It's kind of weird because in the book, yes, it's, quite a, it's a part of the book, but why don't all the Goths and people like that go to Perfleet? Why do they come here? <laughs> I think if you feed to Perfleet, you might find your answer. <laughs> and what I just think we might be in with a, we might have a little niche thing here, is that we, if we opened a Dracula experience in Perfleet... <laughs> it would be authentic and nobody would go there. But I think from here what we need to do is walk down to the, towards the harbour and the Esk. So the, the harbour is at the mouth of the Esk where it reaches the sea. Mm-hmm. And then up the other side on the what's called East Hill, which is where the abbey is, the old abbey, and the church, yeah. the local church, which is the churchyard that Mina and Lucy sit in. Yes, yeah, so let's just say that Lucy is prone to sleepwalking and not just sort of out and about on the landing in the hotel, but actually going out the door and disappears. And that Mina is so concerned for her that she goes looking for her. So she sees her sitting on a bench in the churchyard across the harbour. So what we need to do is work out whether Mina's description of running out of the hotel, down to the harbour, okay. across the bridge and up. The clock was striking one. I won't do my Mina voice anymore. Please the clock don't. was striking one as I was in the Crescent, so here, and there was not a soul in sight. I ran along the North Terrace, which is the terrace that's kind of between the sea and here, but could see no sign of the white figure which I expected. At the edge of the west cliff, above the pier, I looked across the harbour to the east cliff in the hope or fear, I don't know which, of seeing Lucy in our favourite seat. There was a bright full moon with heavy black driving clouds, of course there was, which threw the whole scene into a fleeting diorama of light and shade as they sailed across. For a moment or two I could see nothing, as the shadow of a cloud obscured St Mary's Church and all around it. Then as the cloud passed I could see the ruins of the abbey. Whatever my expectation was, it was not disappointed, for there, on our favourite seat, the silver light of the moon struck a half-reclining figure, snowy white. Here so we she's, go. Seeing, she's seeing Lucy from this side of the Esk, yeah. the other side of town. We need to talk about how many times there's a full moon in this book. Oh, yeah, I'm, you counted the full moon. <laughs> it's practically a full moon every other day. <laughs> I haven't charted it all, but generally... The moon is full in this book. You may not have charted at all, and I bet my bottom dollar Bram Stoker didn't. (laughs) He hasn't looked at his lunar charts. No, he hasn't. (laughs) 
Oh, come all ye bold and rambling boys, a warning take by me. I when ye go night rambling, do shun bad company. For it's sun, no sun, what have you done? You're bound for Botany Bay. I was born and bred in Whitby town and raised most honestly. Till I became a roving blade which proved my destiny. For it's sun, no oh sun, what have you done? You're bound for Botany Bay. So shall we talk a bit about uh, Bram Stoker himself? Bram Stoker. Bram Abraham Stoker. Born 1847. Uh, second of five sons to a clerk at Dublin Castle. So his his father was well embedded in the Anglo-Irish civil service, I would say. Another childhood marred by illness. He had uh, several years of confinement. He didn't walk until he was seven. Gosh. He was became very athletic later in life. He was in the athletics team at Trinity College Dublin. Graduated in 1871, called to the bar became a civil service clerk. Then he met uh, Henry Irving, uh, the actor Henry Irving. And when Henry Irving leased the Lyceum Theatre for his own company in 1878, Stoker threw up the uh, civil service job and joined the London theatre set. Okay. So he married Florence Bulcom, a Dublin beauty, by all accounts. Yes, didn't Oscar who, Wilde have a thing Who for was her? also uh, yeah, courted by Oscar Wilde. Yeah. They were quite good mates, Oscar Wilde and Bram Stoker. Not a very happy marriage, by all accounts. They had a son together, but they, um, they didn't really get on. Um, and this is a bit of a theme of this. Henry Irving is a similar story. Irving well, looms and, very and long. Oscar Wilde is, is yeah, very yeah, much yeah. the story about that. Well, Irving, and then, of course, his other friend is um, that guy Hall Caine. Hall Caine. We need to talk about. We his, do. His best friend, who the book is dedicated to. Dracula is dedicated to. But he doesn't call Hall him Hall Caine, does he? He calls him... Homie Beg. Homie Beg. Yeah. And he, apparently his marriage wasn't... No. That happy eye. But yeah, there's, there's there's lots of stuff about Stoker potentially being you know a gay man or, or repressed homosexual, shall we say? He yeah. wrote he wrote some extraordinary letters to uh, to Walt Whitman. Um, well, it's funny that it's during that period that you've also got the sort of um, a lot of writing about the new woman, yes, uh, who's who's writing about stuff and wants to have the vote and yeah. and is wearing bloomers and riding around on bicycles and how exciting this is and well, how wonderful yeah. it is. Meanwhile, the blokes. Are just voting with their feet, say, "Well, I'm off on holiday with my mates now." Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the theatrical thing I think is key. Yeah, is that we we as we've been travelling around, we've noticed that quite a lot of the scenes where it's set, they, they are very theatrical. They, they are like very, sets, very theatrical, theatrical sets. Yeah. And it, he's obviously got that in mind when he's thinking about stories. He thinks quite a lot about entrances and exits. And I think and it's fair. It's fair like to that. say that the scenes that don't work in the book as well are the kind of bits between those scenes. You know, the actual set pieces are very, very, very effective. Yeah. The stuff, the kind of connective tissue where people are doing exposition, particularly oh, people yeah. with Dutch names, including Van, are, are quite long and uh, hard to get through at times. Yeah. My favourite birth of 1897, given what else has happened, Dennis Wheatley was born in 1897. Oh, wow. So the year that Dracula was published... Right, The Devil Rides Out. The Devil Rides Out um, was, 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 uh, was born. Uh, That's that good, year. I like it. Well, I, I w- I'd already mentioned that, Os- uh, that Oscar Wilde came out of jail that year and we immediately went to France. Right. Um, and I think it's, it's telling that they say that Bram Stoker 
was one of the few people who did go and visit him in France before he, was, yeah. he died, just before he died. Yeah. So he maintained that friendship. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. I think writing th- and the letter writing in this book, obviously De Profundis is one of the most famous letters ever written, I would think, in the English, la- in the English language. Yeah. His other mate, we've, we've mentioned it, Hall Caine, in the same year, by the way, he published a novel called The Christian, which is the first book in Britain to sell over a million copies. Indeed. I'd never really heard of this book, I, but he's fantastically successful, Hall Caine. And it's he, probably worth saying, saying right now that Dracula didn't sell. And, but it's quite yeah. funny that, Brams, if you put a bet at the time on whether Hall Caine, in that year, if you'd said, who's going to be remembered in 100 years' time, Bram Stoker or Hall Caine? Yeah. Everyone in the time would have said, Hall Caine, no question. I did not wait to catch another glance, but flew down the steep steps to the pier and along by the fish market to the bridge, which was the only way to reach the east cliff. The town seemed as dead, for not a soul did I see. I rejoiced that it was so, for I wanted no witness of poor Lucy's condition. The time and distance seemed endless, and my knees trembled, and my breath came laboured as I toiled up the endless steps to the abbey. I must have gone fast, and yet it seemed to me as if my feet were weighted with lead, and as though every joint in my body were rusty. When I got almost to the top, I could see the seat and the white figure, for I was now close enough to distinguish it even through the spells of shadow. There was undoubtedly something, long and black, bending over the half-reclining white figure. I called in fright, Lucy, Lucy, and something raised a head, and from where I was I could see a white face and red, gleaming eyes. Lucy did not answer, and I ran on to the entrance of the churchyard. As I entered, the church was between me and the seat, and for a minute or so I lost sight of her. And when I came in view again, the cloud had passed, and the moonlight struck so brilliantly that I could see Lucy half reclining with her head lying over the back of the seat. She was quite alone, and there was not a sign of any living thing about. (laughs) Very good. So that's doubly creepy, because we are sitting in that churchyard. It's really creepy here, isn't it? Well, we're in the, we're, it's, it's, it's a nice sunny day. It's about five o'clock, five past five. The sun's coming down over the, uh, in the west. We've just been at the bench. We, we've identified the bench, because there's a, there's a particular bench that you can see from the top of the steps, but you can't see from the corner of the church. Yeah, when the church comes between. Yeah, so we think that's definitely the bench, but you yeah. can't really record over there. It's already it's windy on this Too side. Windy. You can probably hear it's windy. Mm. It's really, really windy on the other side. It's packed full of gravestones. It's extraordinary, and they're, and they're, they're just rammed together, and they're leaning over in one way or the other. Um, and they're all of them are all eroded by the wind and the weather, so that their names have been rubbed off. They're all late 18th century to kind of mid 19th century, I would say. So they've all got that lovely Gothic kind of feel to them and then behind it are the ruins of the abbey that's again it's looming over looming <laughs> over it. it's like it's below the... it is the most spectacular harbour as a man of the theatre it's so theatrical you think it's, it's so set. theatrical it's like a massive theatre set that's exactly right it's quite a long walk and run you'd be quite puffed well, we, out we it stro- would take you how many minutes do you think she'd well, take well we strode didn't we quite I reckon it took us 10 to 15 minutes to yeah. go over here so she's going to take I think she's going to take at least 5 if not 10 minutes to, from sighting her on the other side of the harbour to running up here. Yeah, yeah. Here. And that's quite a lot of blood sucking. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. 
There's a very good point there, actually. Is every time he attacks her, how many minutes is he attacking her for? Uh, well, then there's a big. The, is he there for an hour? Or is there's he a big gap. Minutes? There's a big gap between this attack and then the subsequent attacks, isn't there? I yeah. think. But, this is uh, where he gets a taste for her, I guess, and then pursues her in London. But don't you think she's the reason he comes to Whitby? He's never heard of her. Yeah, but it's it's very weird, isn't it? Because it's like um, when you put the dates in date order rather than the order they appear in the book. Lucy starts sleepwalking as the Dem- Demeter approaches up the North Sea. Oh, I had not clocked that. Because there's no actual reason for him to come to Whitby in the book other than to avoid the authorities in London. Which I think seems that's quite a big deal. Incredibly roundabout way to come. I think that's quite a big deal, but also isn't it because he wants to deceive the crew as well about, he, he creates the mist so that they miss London. Yeah, because he's, he's, avoiding, he he's avoiding London. Yeah, yeah. 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 There are quite a lot other places he could have stopped past London. Yeah, have to come all the way out to Whitby because as if we you disca- overshoot London, by, that's not the place by, you end up. By two hundred and fifty miles, yeah, you might end up in Ipswich, but yeah. you're not necessarily yeah. Whitby. So it's a bit weird. That. It's a bit weird unless he's got <laughs> some. Unless he's here for Lucy, you know, there's some kind of connection, but that's never really made explicit. It really isn't. It really isn't. I hadn't even noticed the sleepwalking bit. Her sleepwalking from the Crescent up to here. In uh, what time of year is it? In the summer. It's okay, the summer. So it might be warmer. It's the summer. I still think she'd get a bit chilly. Um, one final point is she. They they spend a lot of their time up here on their favourite bench, don't they? They do. Wilhelmina and Lucy. And they meet the old man in the graveyard. Well, they, well they, there's three of them, three old codgers. Yeah. And one of them then talks a lot about the dead in the graveyard, yeah. whether they're there or not, whether they're going to rise on Judgment Day, etc., etc. In telling him all, all, all crappy tales. But they say they sit next to the three men while they sit there too. That's five people on a bench. Well, there were two benches next to each other. Okay. So I wonder if there's a. There was, I wonder. <laughs> the two benches that are there are modern benches that have been sponsored. Yeah. So I wonder if the people who sponsored them know about the history of that spot. Whether that's a good place to be sponsored. Because <laughs> one, one of them says, you know, a, ch- a cherished spot or something like that. It's like, hmm. Mm. Uh, so maybe there were two benches. There'd have to be, otherwise it's a very tight squeeze to have three old codgers and two young women on a bench. Yeah, wow. <laughs> You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club podcast. If you'd like to listen to this podcast without any ads and get immediate access to every new episode as soon as it's available, you need to check out our Patreon page. Yes, go to Patreon and search for Curiously Specific, and you'll also find our show notes, videos, photographs, and maps. Well, we publish a lot of stuff, don't we? We find a, we find a lot of stuff out when we're doing these books. We do. And anything kind of visual, or I mean, we, we, we put some sort of special little mini essays up, don't we, about bits and pieces. You've written, we've written about bicycles and H.G. Wells. Faggers. Faggers in, in Ridley Walker. Yeah. Yeah, that was, a good, that was a good one. Just go to Patreon, search for Curiosity Pacific, and sign up, and then you've got all the materials you need to plan your own book-related adventure. Which is what this is all about. Is it? Yeah. Now back to the podcast. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It'd be nice to talk a little bit about what Stoker was up to in Whitby. He was on holiday there. So he actually did go to Whitby. He did go to Whitby. We know because we've got his, his diaries and his notes. Not for his whole life, but for, certainly for, for 1890. Okay. And in the summer of 1890, he was 45. Um, this, I'm getting this from a really interesting time.com piece that was written by Dacre Stoker, oh. his, uh, his descendant. Great. And in the summer of 1890, a 45-year-old Bram Stoker entered the subscription library in Whitby, England, and requested a specific title, The Accounts of Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia by William Wilkinson. And they had that in the Whitby Library. Well, it says, this wasn't a title found readily on the shelves or typically made available to the general public. The library didn't even make it known they possessed the rare book. And then he stopped next at the Whitby Museum, where he reviewed a series of maps and pieced together a route beginning in the heart of London and ending upon a mountaintop deep within the wilds of Romania, a latitude and longitude previously noted in his journal... From the museum, he then made his way to Whitby Harbour, where he spoke to royal members of the Royal Coast Guard. He's and they, busy, talked wasn't he? About, they talked about the Dimitri. We'll come on to the Dimitri in a minute. Okay. Uh, he'd written this down in the library. This is, this is from, his, from, his, from his diary. Vovoide, brackets, Dracula. Dracula in Valachian language means devil. Valachians were accustomed to give it as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous either by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. The other thing that Dacre Stoker says in here, which is quite nice, is that there's um, there's quite a lot of interest in the missing section of Dracula. So there's a hundred. You mean it could have been longer? Well, there's a hundred and four oh page. God. There's a hundred and four page kind of prequel that takes place in uh, in Munich. What? And it was published later on as a short story called Dracula's Guest, but it was published as part of the novel, as a preface in the Icelandic version of Dracula. What? And included in, in that uh, prelude was, I am quite convinced that there is no doubt whatever that the events here described really took place. 
however unbelievable and incomprehensible they might appear at first. All the people who have willingly or unwillingly played a part in this remarkable story are known, generally, and well-respected. Both Jonathan Harker and his wife, who is a woman of character, and Dr. Seward are my friends, and have been so for many years, and I have never doubted that they were telling the truth. Oh, now, the yeah. interesting thing about that is Jonathan Harker did work at the Lyceum Theatre. What? There was a set designer called Jonathan Harker at the Lyceum Theatre. So basically, so, so what, 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 the, what people who believe this are saying is kind of that Stoker somehow believed that all this was true. And then actually the editor of the book, a chap called Otto Kilman of Archibald Constable and Company, really, so it, it, it appeared, apparently, they, Dacre Stoker says near that Otto Kilman on this section returned the manuscript with a single word, No. <laughs> and the, you mentioned Jack the Ripper earlier, right? Yeah. The, 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 the hypothesis is that the, the editor said, we can't put this as a true story. We can't publish it in London as a true story. It's too horrific. It and memories of Jack panic. the Ripper are too yeah. fresh. Yeah. Now, there is another alternative explanation was it was too long. Too long. Not more. <laughs> Stop lose the, now. Lose the preface. Yeah. But I quite like the idea that there's, you know, there's, there's the theory out there. The problem is the original manuscript of Dracula is currently owned by, um, or the, the estate of, formerly owned by, Paul Allen of Microsoft. Oh, okay. Um, he bought it in the, sort of the 90s, this original manuscript, so it's quite hard to check this stuff. But He's it's, quite um, a collector of all this kind of stuff. He is, he, he is. Um, what's he doing with it? What's he doing with it? So in the 1980s, the original, this is good, the original Dracula manuscript was discovered in a barn in rural northwest Pennsylvania. That, now, that's the one bit that sounds not true. Nobody knows how it made its way across the Atlantic. Yes, how did it get across the Atlantic? And that manuscript was bought by Paul Allen. Well, he, it's interesting that you'd mentioned that. Did you say it went there in 1890? 1890. Yeah, cause, so basically I found an article in the, about the London Library, your favourite place, Yeah. that they had found a f 26 books that are almost certainly the original copies that Bram Stoker used to help research his enduring classic Dracula. Right. They they already knew he'd been there, obviously. But significantly, he joined in 1890. Uh, and he was active there until he left the library in 1897 when the book was published. So he only joined to research Dracula. That sound, sounds like it, doesn't That's it? That's really good. Right? Nice. So they said that they, they obviously they did, that they had a collection of his handwritten and typed notes that were discovered in 1913. But what they also now found, trawling the shelves, they revealed the library has original copies carrying detailed markings and marginalia. He wrote in the books? Yes. He wrote in the London Library books? Well, shocking, eh? That's a big no-no. Shocking. That's a big no-no. The devil. <laughs> the most evil thing you've ever heard. <laughs> Some of the most heavily marked books include Sabine Baring-Gould's Book of Werewolves, yeah. Thomas Brown's Pseudodoxica Epidemica, um, and then what else? He's got uh, A.F. Cross's Round About the Carpathians <laughs> and Charles Boner's Transylvania. <laughs> I'm not making it up. Round About the Carpathians. It's like Carry On the Carpathians, isn't it? Confessions of a Carpathian. <laughs> he's obviously looking at me. Well, he was obviously being very thorough. All the books yeah. <laughs> that he could possibly Give find. Give me everything you've got on Carpathia. <laughs> even, even the rubbish ones. Even the rubbish ones. <laughs> Hello. Hello. We're on the beach. 
We're on the beach. Well, we're in the harbour, aren't we? We're on the um, the beach, just just outside the inner harbour wall. The wind had by this time backed to the east, and there was a shudder amongst the watchers on the cliff as they realised the terrible danger in which she now was. Between her and the port lay the great flat reef on which so many good ships have from time to time suffered, and with the wind blowing from its present quarter, it would be quite impossible that she should fetch the entrance of the harbour. It was now nearly the hour of high tide, but the waves were so great that in their troughs the shallow of the shore were almost visible, and the schooner, with all sails set, was rushing with such speed that in the words of one old salt, she must fetch up somewhere if it was only in hell. The schooner paused not, but rushing across the harbour, pitched herself on that accumulation of sand and gravel, washed by many tides and many storms, into the southeast corner of the pier, jutting under the east cliff, known locally as Tate Hill Pier. So here we are on the beach in Whitby, um, at the precise and specific location of the boat, the Demeter. Or the, the Demeter, Demi- the Demeter, the Demeter from Varna. In 1885, another ship called the Dimitri. Oh, uh, came Demeter, to, Dimitri. Yes, exactly. Very came, good. Came to grief here. A real so, ship, you mean? There's a nice little. Uh, yes, we're we're in the land of reality here. Nice little thing in the Guardian, actually. Weather Watch, 1885. Whitby storm inspired grim scene in Dracula. It was 135 years ago, this is 2020, on the 24th of October, 1885, that a storm hit Whitby, and the ship Dimitri ran aground and was wrecked in Collier's Hope in the approaches to the harbour, a scene that later inspired Bram Stoker when he wrote Dracula. When Stoker stayed in Whitby on a holiday, he talked to the Coast Guard about the shipwreck. In his notes, he also mentioned how a big dog jumped off the grounded ship and ran up the church steps and into the churchyard. And so, in Dracula, the ship became the Demeter and was wrecked in a storm at the harbour. OK, that's very good. There's a dog that runs off the boat, the Demeter that runs off the boat and runs up the steps. There was a pheasant in the graveyard. <laughs> I was wondering whether, whether maybe he'd manifested a pheasant and <laughs> that just flown off the boat. That would have made, that would have made less of an impact on the locals, I fear. Um, I think it kind of explains, if you look behind you there, Lloyd, yeah. it kind of explains why there's a really, really big sign there that says, keep dogs on a lead. Yes. Well, you would. But so, Demeter lands here, Dimitri lands here. I've got a picture of the D- D- Dimitri. There was one in the, on the pub. Beach. There was one in the pub, yeah, it was. Yeah. There was a picture there yeah. and a little statement. Yeah. So it's quite interesting because you, you, you get in the outer harbour, but then it loses control. Right. So this bit is all very believable. Yeah, it works, doesn't it? And the Coast Guard at well, the time says to Bram Stoker that it was a dog. There was a dog that ran up the steps. And where we're standing, we're standing on the beach. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. But a and then bit, just around the corner, here comes oh, a, dog. a dog. A dog has just come down the steps with a small okay. girl, not okay. in its jaws. Um, Doesn't look very scary. And, uh, and it's on a lead. So sorry. people come down here to walk their dogs. To walk their dogs, yeah. And those steps then go up to the street that then leads to the to stairs the up to the churchyard. Well, you can see from some parts of the beach, you can see the roof of the church. Yeah, so that, this is all working fine, it's right? It's very good. I'm glad we came down here. And it's just now sunset, and the sun is going down over... The uh, West Hill. See the statue of Captain Cook silhouetted against the sunset. It's very good, that, isn't it? 
Uh, so there's one thing I, else I want to talk about. Right. That at the um, in the book, when the boat is in distress at the shore, they talk about manning the new searchlight that's currently being in experimental mode and it's shining been, it across to the. It's been set up to be experimented with. Yeah, to order. sort of guide guide boats into the harbour, presumably. Yeah, or to find people at, in, at, in, in distress. Difficulty. Right, well, this marine searchlight malarkey <laughs> is, frankly, a load of old tosh. Right. As far as I can tell, marine searchlights were never used in harbours. They were only used in military for, you know, for military purposes on boats, and not really until the First World War to sort of light up targets, as it were. All I can tell you about is that that there was a... The, the, the kind of search like they're talking about was developed by a French military officer. It was mounted on the Eiffel Tower. Right. Late 1880s. OK. Which does have a searchlight, you can see it. Don't yeah, you? that's the only evidence of one. There's not one in the UK of any sort whatsoever. He's completely made this up. Well, now I think... It, Why now would he make this up? It's an odd thing, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is odd. Why would he make it up? Well, my only suggestion is, having read this book three times, as usual, is he's very keen to be with it about new technology, isn't he? Yeah, he is. OK, so you think the searchlight is just a complete... I think it's just another one of those herring. details to make him look very modern and contemporary. It's kind of what thriller writers do, though, isn't it? Contemporary thriller writers. You chuck in loads of, like stuff about the actual make of the gun it's like Jack Reach has always got the latest guns and yes. uh, uh, and using the latest tech well, for like, very much night go- vision goggles were always big weren't they in 90s <laughs> that's, true. that's true it's also like because I like that with Robert Ludlum or something like that it's, uh, it's that business actually it's in the book this business obsession with dates of like yeah. this letter 14th of August yeah. 1pm yeah. sort of stuff it's very, very thriller very, trying to be very sort of specific the illusion is specificity and then he just keeps getting it wrong yeah. which we'll come on to 11.44 yeah. I took my first coffee <laughs> at booth number three at Amsterdam airport yeah. So we, uh, we were talking on the beach about uh, thriller writers and their penchant for uh, technology so they can look up to, up to speed. Yeah, it's like a way they, of like they've they've done their research. very sort of contemporary, isn't it? Yeah, and I uh, suppose. you got a little bit exercised about the searchlight in Whitby. Yes, although on reflection, I've realised, of course, that the, the most famous contemporary searchlight that we have in our culture, the bat signal. <laughs> Makes perfect sense once you see it like that. Of course. Of course. But his obsession with the latest technology in this book is quite striking. The phonograph, do you want to talk a bit about the phonograph? Yeah, please. So uh, Jack Seawood um, uses, uses his phonograph to record quite lengthy diary entries, I would say. Um, the phonograph itself was obviously invented by Edison. 20 years before the time of, of Dracula, 1877 was the yeah, first Yeah, but they one. were like ridiculously uh, uh, big yeah. things. But then he right. kind of left it behind. But then it was picked up by Alexander Graham Bell, actually. Yep. And they developed the first machine for recording and reproducing speech called the graphophone, which used wax cylinders. That was made in 1885. Right. And a dictating machine. Machine. And if you subscribe to our Patreon page, I'll put some pictures up. But there is quite a, a neat and small dictating machine. But the main thing I want to say about it's not them, portable though. No, it's not portable, and they were they were worked by um, like a sewing machine. They were worked by a foot pedal, right? 
So you're not carrying it around. And you need several cylinders. Uh, Well, the the point is, you can only record two to four minutes of speech per (laughs) cylinder. And I don't know. with Van Helsing around. (laughs) How many cylinders would you need? If you want to put Van Helsing on there, you'd need need a ship just to carry your your recording cylinders around. So that's that's kind of ludicrous, really, that whole stuff about the phonograph. Because obviously then poor old um, Mina has to to type it it all up with a typewriter. So let's get into typewriters, shall we? The first commercial typewriters, 1874. Not common in offices until the mid-1880s, so mm-hmm. same time as you're talking about the cylinders. There's no, there's no uh, sort of decent portable typewriter, even at the point that she's talking about it, uh, that Stoker's talking about it. It's really only in 1897 with the Underwood One typewriter that's the first typewriter with a typing area fully visible to the typist until a key is struck, I, you know... So the, the others were just office machines. Right. They're not something you could have at home. No way. And you certainly couldn't uh, lug it around with you, I don't believe. Well, the other, thing, the other technology he mentions use. is he mentions Kodak. Yes. So, uh, Well, I'm going to get on my high horse about that as well, if you're not careful. Yeah, well, I, don't, I think you're going to get off your high horse of whether I'm careful or not, aren't you? <laughs> the, Kodak was, uh, the, the Kodak camera was invented in... 1888. But that is a big old a thing. A leather-covered box camera that came preloaded with 100 exposure roll yeah. film. Yeah, but that's, again, that's a really big thing to be taking around. He's talking about taking, oh, we'll just make a, take a few snaps of the house. Oh, so we're talking, about Seward, is, we're talking about Dr. Seward going to Piccadilly armed with several cylinders, a phonograph, <laughs> me going around with a massive <laughs> steampunk typewriter and also a, a, a camera the size of a shoebox. Yeah. And they're all travelling around yeah, together, not bringing any attention to themselves. The last technology that I want to talk about... Go on. Blood transfusion. Oh, yes, please right. do. This um, is improbable as well, this right? Is, yeah, this is improbable. In the book, when Lucy is, uh, is bitten by Dracula and, and turned, there is, I think, a kind of... A fairly comical scene where literally all her suitors, who've been carefully set up at the beginning of the book, so anyway, all three of them uh, end up giving blood transfusion, and 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 Van Helsing actually. But it wasn't until 1901, here we go, when Carl Landsteiner discovered the human blood groups O, A, and B, that anything like successful blood transfusions started to happen. So a little bit like with <laughs> phonographs and Kodaks and typewriters, he's way ahead of the curve on blood transfusions. There's no way you would successfully do four blood transfusions. In 10 days. In 10 days from four different people to one woman. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I know she's passed over to another state of being by yeah. this stage, but um, she would, she would, she'd she die. She'd be dead. You'd be like dead, dead. Not like dead, I'm dead. Dead, not dead, not dead, 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 dead. Um, but, but it's not because not, it's not just the fact that she would die. In the book, she, is, she, she gets better. But actually now, as, as I'm saying this, <laughs> as yeah. I'm saying this, yeah. I'm wondering whether I've got this quite right because mm-hmm. the point being, they're giving a vampire blood. Ah, so she's thriving she's off thriving their blood. She's thriving on the blood. His brother was a very eminent Thornley, Irish yeah. doctor. Thornley Stoker. Yeah, who may have had some information yeah. about it. Yeah, they may, may have, have had a chat about it at least. They may have done. Where his brother said, no, mate, that doesn't work like yeah. that. <laughs> I need it to work. It's out. just a story. Now is the winter of our discontent. Be glorious summer by this sun of God. All the clouds have been showered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean. Now are our brows filled with victorious grief, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms 
We were coming home for dinner and had come to the top of the steps up from the West Pier and stopped to look at the view as we generally do. The setting sun, low down in the sky, was just dropping behind Kettle Ness. The red light was thrown over on the East Cliff and the Old Abbey and seemed to bathe everything in a beautiful rosy glow. We were silent for a while and suddenly Lucy murmured as if to herself, his red eyes again, they are just the same. It was such an odd expression, coming apropos of nothing, that it quite startled me. I slewed round a little so as to see Lucy well without seeming to stare at her, and saw that she was in a half dreamy state, with an odd look on her face that I could not quite make out. So I said nothing. <laughs> I like the way our readings are getting um, more theatrical in this uh, episode. <laughs> yeah, good, eh? So we're back in the graveyard. We can't we're keep ba- away. We're back in St Mary's Church graveyard on the top of East Cliff. The lights have just come on. The lights in Whitby have come on because it's getting dark. The sun has gone down. And the gulls are crying. We are past sunset. <laughs> the gulls are crying. Okay. Can't you hear the, the silence hear of the gulls? The silence of the gulls. The, the, the gulls are screaming. So we're back in the graveyard. Um, one of the reasons we came up here, Whitby has got a, obviously got a reputation for being something of a, um, a, a nesting place for a rare and exotic uh, species, the goth. We were hoping to see more goths, and there's very been very few goths. We were having a little bet with ourselves so about far, how many goths we'd see. So far, I've only seen one. Whitby actually has a, a, a goth festival, Tomorrow's Ghosts Festival. Okay. Which I think nice. is an excellent name. They have it twice a year. The first one is in um, later in April. Some of the bands playing, Ghost Dance. Yep. Balam and the Angel. Yes. Boot Blacks. Never heard of them. This is my favourite name coming up, yep. All My Thorns. Which is very good. I don't think that's Tracy Thorne and her sisters. <laughs> I think that's actually a goth band. Okay. There's also Evil Blizzard. I like that one. I'd go and watch a band called Evil Blizzard. So that's that's later in April. But it's interesting, isn't it, that obviously obviously the reason that Whitby has attracted goths is is because of Dracula. Right? I, I was very amused to see and I've got it on my phone, I took a picture of it, that at the church door which is now locked in the evening, so we can't go and see. Mary's church, yeah. It says we're operating a one-way system, please keep to the right. <laughs> what, inside the church or in the churchyard? <laughs> but then it says, please do not ask staff where Dracula's grave is, as there isn't one. <laughs> Thank you. The, the, re- the reason that's funny is, as there isn't one, is just, just chef's kiss. But also just the frustration of how many times people oh. come into the church Can and, you imagine? and said, excuse me, where's Dracula's grave? Can you imagine coming here? Well, I'll tell you what it does show, actually. No one's read the book. Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. Everyone knows what Dracula is. Yeah. Who Dracula is. They've seen a film or maybe a couple of films. Yeah. You know, they've, they've seen all the... They've not read the book. But... I'd go further and say they've not really thought about the concept no. of Dracula <laughs> is he doesn't need a grave. That's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've rather missed the point of the whole thing. That's why I like the as there isn't one. On that, He's it? undead. 
So I was, we were wondering if there might be some goths congregating. It's a Friday night in Whitby. There's just loads of people in cagoules because it's quite cold. Well, there's people taking pictures of the sunset. Yeah. Or with very serious photography setups. And then dog walkers. Lots of dogs. Maybe the dogs. dogs. Maybe the dogs. Maybe the dogs turn into goths later on. You're starting to get a little theme here in our podcast about dog conspiracies that you 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 in, you clearly enjoy. I think the dogs know more than they're letting on. <laughs> the girls are getting more intense. So that we finally got to the end of the Whitby. Journey. You made it sound like I'm a bit tired even, now. If you even you're bored by the podcast, what hope do we have for anyone to listen to it? No, it's just very intense. Well, it was a lot in Dracula. I know. Uh, but we're going to leave Whitby behind. Okay. Uh, and uh, even though it was great, it was Can really, really great. Made it such a great time. We're going to leave Whitby behind uh, and start to head south. But uh, if you want to um, listen to the second part of this, where we go to Perfleet and Piccadilly, and we also talk about dating and trains, exciting. Um, you should uh, subscribe to our Patreon account. Yes, just go to Patreon and search for Curiously Specific. And if you sign up with us, not only do you get the uh, this podcast ad-free, you, get, you can get an immediate access to Part 2, and you can get all the voluminous show notes, uh, and also one. the spectacular video and photos from Whitby, actually. Well, we reenacted the uh, the scene where Dra- uh, Dracula bites Lucy. Unfortunately, yes. I wasn't able to do it with a blonde wig on. No, unfortunate. Yeah, which I was looking forward to. Unfortunate. Um, anyway, so the the best place for you to go after that is Lunatic Asylum. Yeah, we'll talk about Lunatic Asylums as well. So if you want to listen to all that immediately, go to, over to Patreon and uh, hand over a little bit of cash. Not very much. Not even the price of a coffee these days. That's right. uh, and uh, you get it straight away. If you don't want to do that, uh, you have to wait a week. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll be back here in a week's time with the second part of our Dracula adventure.